You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your internet privacy today and get an extra three months free with a one-year package at expressvpn.com slash mission log. This episode is also brought to you by Helix Sleep. Mission Log listeners get $200 off their new mattress and two free pillows when you take the sleep quiz and order today at helixsleep.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 391, Sacrifice of Angels. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm the Norman Lau. And I'm the John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we search for the morals, meanings, messages contained within each and every episode of Star Trek, no matter how much belief we are asked to suspend. This week, Sacrifice of Angels, otherwise known as the episode that posits how many prophets can the Cisco have dance on the head of a pin? But before we dive into that, what will no doubt be a rousing discussion, here's how you can stay in touch with us. Mission Log is a conversation about the stories of Star Trek, so that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter. If you're so inclined, give us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. But now, with the trivia, is once again the John Champion. Why, thank you, the Norman Lau. Today's episode, Sacrifice of Angels, is written by Ira Stephen Baron Hans Beimler. Of course, we know that because they wrote part one of this story as well. And let's go back to that discussion about arcs that we've been having. Uh, it was interesting in retrospect to find out that this part of the DS9 story overall was supposed to be four episodes. Then they thought, well, the fifth one is really where we need to go with the story. Then that fifth episode just took on too much, and it was decided to split that one into where we are now, which uh, by my math is the second part of the final one-fifth of a six-episode storyline bridging the fifth and sixth seasons. I think I got that right. And, of course, giving some resolution to the Dominion War, at least as it stands now. This was directed by Alan Croker, and we've mentioned him uh, more and more often. He directed the season finale, A Time to Stand, and as a guy who has a reputation for directing the ending of stories, well, it's fitting that he should be here, too, for the ending of this arc. We do have a historical reference to the Battle of Cannae in the 3rd century BC, not, not by name, but by action. That is loosely the strategy in battle that Ducat plans to use against the Starfleet ships by allowing them through enough to surround them. That's what Hannibal did against the Romans during the Second Punic War in 216 BC. It did not go well for the Romans. 
In fact, it was the single deadliest battle for them, for all of the Romans, and actually for most of history until it was surpassed, until the Somme Offensive in 1916. Now, uh, we have been talking about these big battles and uh, such a big battle scene as we have here. So big, in fact, that the CG work had to be split among two different effects houses. Simply impossible to have been completed with traditional methods and definitely not on the time frame and budget of a TV show. So you had one effects house doing all the good guy ships, one effects house doing all the bad guy ships, and then you let them have it. Speaking of ships, we do have a couple of mentions, new ship names. We have the Sitak and the Majestic, both Miranda-class ships, uh, both meet an unfortunate end. Sitak is Vulcan by name, and Majestic, now, now this one is cool for somebody like me being a historical ship buff, could be the name of many ships in history. You had the HMS Majestic and actually a whole class of Majestic battleships, uh, which would have been the largest of their kind in the 1890s from the British Navy. Then after World War I, the British took possession of the Bismarck passenger ship from the Germans and renamed it the Majestic, uh, the RMS Majestic to be specific, and it was the largest passenger ship of its time uh, until 1935 when the Normandy went into service. So it uh, had a, a nice long reign, uh, more than 50,000 tons uh, at the time, so quite a big ship for its era. And uh, let's talk about guest stars. Well, look, this part of my job is easy again for another week. Uh, we have all the same guest stars returning since we are in an ongoing story. And you're welcome. I don't want to spoil anything, but to everyone aboard a Miranda-class ship in this episode, I've got some really bad news for you. Prologue. Last time on Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Captain Sisko declared that the key to the Alpha Quadrant is the wormhole, and whoever controls Deep Space Nine controls the wormhole. His plan, retake the station by any means necessary. Meanwhile, Odo has been sidelined by the female changeling as Kira and the rest of her resistance cell press onwards to prevent the minefield's destruction. En route to Deep Space Nine, Sisko's forces are blocked by a massive Dominion fleet that outnumbers the Allied ships two to one, and Sisko is about to find out if fortune favors the bold. And now the conclusion. On the bridge of the Defiant, Captain Sisko commands his ships to engage the Dominion fleet. He orders his attack fighters to engage only the Cardassian ships, and Garrick explains to a very puzzled Nog that Sisko is attempting to bait the Cardassians into chasing the fighters, which would open a hole for the Defiant and her escort wing to push through the Dominion lines. As the battle is joined, O'Brien and Bashir recite an ancient Earth poem apropos to what lies ahead for them. Cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon in front of them, volleyed and thundered, stormed at with shot and shell, boldly they rode and well, into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell, rode the six hundred. Act 1. Chief O'Brien informs Captain Sisko that the Cardassians aren't engaging the fighters as expected, as the captain orders Nog to send additional waves of fighters to keep harassing the Cardassian lines. However, from his tactical display on Tarak Nor, Dukat knows exactly what Sisko is trying to do. 
and explains to both Wei-Yoon and the female changeling that he will give Sisko what he wants, an opening through the Dominion fleet and one that Dakot relishes to collapse on Sisko's fleet and destroy them. Dakot also assures the founder that the minefield will be down within eight hours as she and Wei-Yoon leave dismissively, leaving Damar aggravated at their arrogance and smugness. However, Damar has more pressing concerns, such as rounding up the usual suspects, meaning Major Kira, Lita, and Jake Sisko, so that they won't pose any further threat to Dakot's plans. Damar even boldly recommends placing Zial under house arrest, just in case, which infuriates Dakot as he sternly reminds Damar that she is loyal to her father and to Cardassia. Meanwhile in Quarks, Kira, Lita, Jake, and surprisingly Quark himself are planning on what to do about protecting the minefield. With Rom still locked away under armed guard, Kira suggests that taking out the main computer with a bomb is the only way to destroy the station's deflector array. But before they can leave Quarks, Damar arrives and takes them away for questioning. All of them, except for Quark. Act 2 As the battle between Sisko's and the Dominion's forces escalate, Sisko's fighters have been ineffective at luring away any Cardassian ships. That is, until Dukat orders several of them to create the opening that Sisko has been looking for. Knowing that this opportunity is most definitely a trap, Sisko orders his tactical wing to push forward and try to make a run for it, as this is their only chance at getting any ships through the blockade. Galaxy-class starships carve out a path for the Defiant as it makes its way through the opening, but its defensive escort of Miranda-class ships are out of position. Chief O'Brien informs Sisko that the fleet communications are being jammed, and Sisko's tactical orders are going unanswered. On Terak Nor, Dukat is in his office, pouring a celebratory toast for himself and Wayun, of which Wayun graciously declines. No matter, as Dukat enjoys both drinks. Wayun believes that holding power over the Federation will be difficult, but if they eradicate Earth, the Dominion will crush any future Federation resistance. But Dukat tries to explain to Wayun that the truest form of victory is to leave your enemy alive so that they can see the error of their ways in resisting in the first place. To quote Dukat, to force them to acknowledge your greatness. Dukat laments why the Bajorans never saw his benevolence for what was as their liberator, their protector, and as a fodder figure to his Bajoran children, as Wayun listens, fascinated by Dukat's unabashed egotism. Meanwhile in his quarters, Odo's loyalties to his friends, friends who are fighting and dying in the fleet battle against the Dominion, and his loyalties to the Great Link are put to the ultimate test, as the female changeling also informs him that Kira has been arrested and is sentenced to death. Back on the Defiant, it's one step forward, as the chief restores comms, and one step back, as he also reports that the cloaking device is fried. With no choice but to keep pressing forward, Sisko orders the Defiant to punch through four Jem'Hadar attack ships dead ahead. Act 3. The Defiant is trying to outrun the Jem'Hadar attack ships, only having been able to destroy one. With aft shields failing and the cloaking device still offline, it's only a matter of time before the Klingons appear, just in the nick of time, as Worf contacts Sisko, apologizing for being late, but was obviously successful in wrestling away the ships he needed from Chancellor Gowron. With the Klingons adding their firepower to reinforce the Federation lines and a new escort wing to clear the way, Sisko orders the Defiant to press onward to Terak Nor at maximum warp. Dakot is monitoring Sisko's progress from ops and still maintains that Sisko poses no threat 
to his fully armed and operational battle station. Meanwhile, in her quarters, an unsuspecting Zial is grabbed and silenced by Quark, who desperately needs her for something important. He needs her to make a Hasperat souffle so that he can enter security and try to pass it off as lunch for Major Kira, which will, of course, be inspected closely by a guard, who will then be hyposprayed unconscious by Zial. All is going to plan until Quark and Zial enter the holding area. Armed with Cardassian disruptors in both hands, he orders the Jem'Hadar not to move, but then to move so that the cells can be opened. But how can you if you are? Well, maybe just the one guard. Never mind. As the guards rush Quark, he cuts them down post-haste. Zial takes one of his weapons, destroys the cell controls, and frees Kira, Lita, Jake, and Rom as they all escape, with Kira and Rom heading to destroy the station's main computer as planned. In Odo's quarters, as the female changeling tries to link with him again, they are interrupted by Wayun, who informs his founders that Kira and her cellmates have escaped. Wayun recommends that they all would be safer and more secure in ops, as the female changeling agrees and leaves with Wayun. Odo, however, chooses to stay behind. As Kira and Rom try to shake their pursuers on their way to destroy the main computer, they are pinned down by Jem'Hadar fire. But a surprised Rom tells Kira that he definitely hears Bajoran phaser fire. But how? And why? As they carefully leave their cover and survey the downed Jem'Hadar soldiers, Odo and a cadre of Bajoran security guards enter the room. With no time to spare, he and Kira put aside their differences as he escorts her and Rom to a Jeffrey's tube so they can complete their mission. Kira asks why Odo has given up the link, given up paradise. He responds, I don't think there's time to explain it. Besides, I think you know the answer. The Defiant is minutes away as Rom and Kira are feverishly working on shutting down the computer core. Knowing that they don't have the time, Kira tells Rom to shut down the station's weapons instead so that the mines cannot be detonated. As Rom tries to beat the clock, Damar informs Dakot that the Klingon forces have changed the momentum against them. But Dakot remains undeterred, knowing that victory is within his grasp and hoping that Sisko and the Defiant will be there to see the minefield fall. And within seconds of each other, Rom cuts the last connection of the weapons array, but not before Damar completes neutralizing the last mind, allowing Dakot to open fire on the minefield, which cascades in an explosion large and brilliant enough for Sisko to see that he is too late. Moments earlier, Dax asks Benjamin if he had a plan B. It turns out that he is going to prove Dax just that as he orders the Defiant into the wormhole itself to face the Dominion fleet alone. Act 4. As Sisko and the crew of the Defiant prepare to bring all of their offensive capabilities to bear on the incoming Dominion fleet, Sisko is bathed in a brilliant wash of light and knows that he is now no longer on the Defiant's bridge but is in communion with the prophets, who want to know why the Cisco chooses to end the game. Cisco surmises that the game that the prophets refer to is in fact his life, and they want Cisco's game to continue. He tries to explain to them that he has no choice but to make a last stand against the Dominion, and if they truly wanted his game to continue, Cisco demands of them to act like the gods they purport themselves to be, with all the adversary, aggression, and belligerence afforded him as their emissary. Sisko demands a miracle, and not just for him, but for Bajor and all of those who have devoted their lives to elevating the prophets as their gods. And as their decision is made, 
And as they declare that a penance must be enacted for what is to come, Sisko is returned to his own reality as he orders his crew to stand ready to fire on the Dominion fleet. Act 5. On the Defiant, Sisko and his crew stare at the view screen, watching the seemingly unstoppable juggernaut of Dominion ships advance without challenge, until they simply disappear. All aboard the Defiant are awestruck and dumbfounded watching the Dominion fleet vanish without a neutrino trace, not cloaked or some other means of masking their signatures, just simply gone. As the wormhole opens, Dukat, the female changeling, Wayun, and all in ops are stunned to watch one single solitary ship emerge, the Defiant, and only the Defiant came through with phasers blazing as it rocks Terak Nor. Unable to fire back, thanks to Rom's earlier and thorough handiwork, and in concert with the news that 200 allied ships are en route as well, Wayun and the female changeling order an immediate evacuation and retreat to Cardassian space. Dukat is all but lost as he cannot grasp how his fortune has turned so quickly when total victory was mere minutes away. Shoving Damar aside, Dukat flees to find Zial instead of leaving the station. Arriving on the promenade and striding back into his office, Captain Sisko has kept his promise to return to Deep Space Nine and liberate the Majoran people once again as the female changeling and Wayun safely escape. Dukat, upon finding Zial, is only outraged and unbalanced even further as she admits to aiding Kira's resistance cell. As she leaves him, she turns one last time to tell him that she loves him and is immediately cut down by Damar's disruptor fire as a traitor to Cardassia. Broken and huddled over her dying body, Dukat shoves Damar away to stay with Zial. As the Federation returns to Deep Space Nine, friends and family are reunited as loved ones find each other amidst the swirling celebration on the promenade. But not all reunions were happy ones as Garrick discovered Zial in the infirmary, as Major Kira watched over her. He wondered why Zial loved him, and lamented, now he never will. Finally, a babbling, delusional, and shattered version of Dukat is helped to his feet by Odo, and escorted out of his holding cell, only to come face to face with Sisko once more. Dukat reaches out to him, handing him Sisko's baseball, as it were a sign of his total surrender, and is finally taken away. The end. So much plot, Norman. So much plot. But you did it. Thank you. And, and by the way, you resisted making a joke where one was in my head, cannons to the left, cannons to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. <laughs> it uh, popped into my head for sure. Right? Okay, yeah. It had to. It yeah. had to. But that little exchange, that that is from the Charge of the Light Brigade by Tennyson. Uh, it was about the Crimean War. And, uh, you, you know, look, it's just a good thing from our perspective in the 21st century that, that all of that is totally resolved and there's no dispute anymore about Crimea and Russia's jurisdiction there. So no, no worries. Yeah. I mean, you know, history not repeating itself. Yeah. You know, no, no. Not at all. Not no. at all. <laughs> what I like about the beginning of that scene, though, is mm -hmm. something that you mentioned before when we were doing Rocks and Shoals and then going all the way back to when Garrick was uh, on the station and he was, you know, kind of he was driven crazy by the like, I guess, the psychotropic drugs that were on right. the other Teraknor. But now it's kind of come full circle with he and Nog now on the same ship. And Garrett kind of taking that mentoring role with him. Like, oh, you're learning pretty quickly, cadet. You know, this is the reason why, you know, Cisco's doing the bibbly-boo, right? Uh, yeah. And it was just, they've put it all behind them because 
whatever was behind them isn't nearly as terrifying as what's in front of them. Well, well, that's true. So it it takes that circumstance. So because I'm just thinking realistically, I mean, this goes back to the whole thing about, you know, Data losing his mind and taking over the ship and everybody's cool with him again at the end of it. Norman, you and I are friends and co-hosts. If you tried to stab me one day, I think it would still be very difficult to work with you uh, having that in the back of my head. Well, <laughs> would that have happened in Vegas? Because, you know, okay, so again, all is it's, forgiven. It's all about right. circumstance. It is all about that's Yeah, okay, I, I guess that is my point then. Well, you know what, John? I'm, I'm glad you bring that up. And I didn't, didn't, haven't even uh, considered it that way. But this isn't the only time in this episode where certain egregiances are forgiven pretty quickly. Mm. So mm-hmm. we'll get to that a little bit later. We will. Sure. Yeah, yeah. One thing, though, that we always mention is that we we do criticize some of the background effects because we see large tactical displays, usually static displays. But I really liked what was going on in the Defiance Bridge. There were a lot of animated tactical displays, which gave the environment of the bridge a lot more of, of that wartime feel, you know, active wartime engagement feel. I kind of wondered about that, if that is an Alan Croker decision uh, as the director, just you have a lot of leeway in terms of budget and production value, because there's just there's a lot of energy to this episode. And those battle scenes, there's a lot of action happening, even cut to DS9. And with them standing around that tactical display to see what's happening, little rudimentary, sure, but it gets the information across that they need to. And, and funny bit of dialogue with the founder there and Garrick and Wayun's one-upmanship. <laughs> Garrick oh, yeah. say, oh, perhaps you'd like to explain what's going on, Wayun. I, I could never match your eloquence, which is, you know, code for I don't understand. And, and Ducat saying true, just a golden piece of dialogue with both actors playing the subtext. You know, and I like that Ducat only really had to push that particular issue just once and just far enough not to completely embarrass Wayun in front of his god. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, though, how awesome was that tactical display in Ops? Yeah. I mean, I, see, I yeah. love me a good tactical display. Yep, yep. It was very, very nice. Even if it, it's sort of like in between what we would have now as a super advanced computer readout versus, say, like, you know, the Mattel football game. Where it's just little blips, blips of light, you know. It's and yet that game still entertains to this and day. And yet it's still good. <laughs> it still works. Yes, yes. I, I do have to say I love, love, love the payoff of building up Zial's complicated relationship on the station and, and then Damar having to navigate his suspicions about her to Dukat. It, it, it's obvious we know how it's going to play out. But they built all those layers so expertly over the previous episodes. Love, love, love that. And I know this isn't spoiling anything, and we will get to this, what Mm -hmm. eventually will become Damar's final act and probably the most horrific act in this episode. But you're right. It was earned over time. It wasn't an ask in this episode like a couple other asks that were so big that you didn't feel like that they really have been grounded in previous storytelling attempts. But You know, Damar, after getting pretty much handed to him, I would say A-S-S handed to him. He he had had his Kanar handed to him right right in front of everybody. His Kanar was in a sling. (laughs) But that and knowing that and seeing her interact with Kira, he is suspicious of Zial and it is merited. 
And, yeah. you know, that was that was nice to see. Also nice to see that DeMar, as a loyal Cardassian, does what's right for quote unquote Tardasia because he's he stood up to Ducat. He's like, hey, mm-hmm. your daughter is not all up and up. And yep. that could have gotten him killed. You yeah. know, essentially with for Dukat. real. For real. Although it, you know, maybe it was uh, of course Damar didn't know this, but it could have been a calculated thing. Ducat, after all, was the person who was going to kill his daughter when we first met her. So mm-hmm. their their loyalties shift depending on what their feeling is in the moment. You know, it's a, a very human thing for mm-hmm. Cardassians to have. And now we talked about this a little bit last week with uh, our resistant cell just sort of acting out in the open and how the timing was very weird that a week had gone by. Cut to Quark's bar. Here's Lita, Kira, Jake, Quark, just all all hanging out together, talking about how it's going and what their strategy <laughs> is going to be. Yeah. Round up the usual suspects. Yeah, well, they're right there at that table talking, yes. Yeah, and then obviously under surveillance, I would think when Quark was like, a bomb. A bomb? Like, why would you say that? (laughs) But I love when Damar shows up and he says he's taken away the usual suspects. And he's like, you don't have anything to worry about if you have nothing to hide. And he looks right at Lita's chest and he goes, you certainly don't. I, I was know. like, was that yeah. scripted or did Casey throw that in? I know. I was, oh, I was so like, oh, Damar, I will, I right? will smack you. Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. it was just, I don't know. It seemed like a beat that was out of step with Damar's seriousness, but he also is kind of smug and yeah. has a superiority complex. And obviously he's a sexist pig, Cardassian. Yeah, clearly. So yeah, No, it, 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 it works. Yeah. But it, yeah. it, it did make me go, ooh, you. Um, <laughs> now, we did mention it. Uh, some very impressive battle scenes uh, toward the top of the show. Um, funny, though, like even in space, even with the complexity that we can build and with using CG, we're still with the same dynamic of basically rows of ships facing each other head on. In yeah. one plane, <laughs> you know, and, and it is it is space. It is three dimensional. You can move around. We do get a lot of movement at a certain point, but they, they kind of hit each other in that way. I got to say some great Klingon battle cruiser action. Oh, man. Some really good looking uh, shots with that. I think what you said is actually important when it came to filming that scene, because I think the, the Klingon ships look sexier because they're coming in from an attack vector that's not standard. Yep. When you're looking at this. They stand out. Yeah. Yeah. I remember in, I think it was in All Good Things in TNG when the the future Enterprise with the third nacelle, mm-hmm. it, it, it came from an attack vector like from the bottom of the screen to the top of the screen, and it was an effect that was never seen before, and it made it look so much more impressive because it wasn't like a, a stock turn or a stock movement. So, but yeah. 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 Also, Galaxy Class wings of Galaxy Class ships. <laughs> well, wow, super cool. Yeah. Like, why don't you just make a fleet of Galaxy Class ships? I don't know. Yeah. the 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 minefield and the battlefield all take place on that same x axis. It, it's a, you know what I, space is big and three dimensional. We could use it all. Yeah. Why Why do that? Let's just use the two dimensions. <laughs> let's let, let, let's just limit ourselves to that. You know, it just make it'll make things so much easier. Let's all agree to that, shall we? By the way, why why is Doctor Bashir on the bridge calling out 
shield percentages. That feels like one of those contractual obligation scenes. Like, well, we don't have a scene in sickbay, so let's just put him there. I don't know. Maybe he's calculating the percentage loss in his head based on, like, <laughs> whatever they could get be. hit with. He's I mean, a I very know. smart guy. Yeah. Oh. Speaking of smart, oh, God. It, you know, again, Wei Yun just gets so many good lines, and he says to Takata as he's about to chug down a little more canar, perhaps if you mm. didn't talk so much, your throat wouldn't get so dry. Ah, I love oh it. God. I One love Wei Yun's lines. shade. So good. <laughs> he is. He is. His shade is top, top notch. Yes. I'm just wondering if Jeffrey and and Mark like off screen are like, you want to like ramp this up, you know, in a way that's not scripted or not characterized by the writers, you know, just kind of like you know give it a little bit more oomph. Yeah, it's like yeah, sure, that would be fun because it's it's beyond the page, you know, that tension's beyond the page. Truly, truly. Yeah. Oh, and uh, very exciting that in this episode we got to see a brand new use for Hasperat, the souffle. Mm. Who knew? Up until now, it just was like a turkey wrap. But uh, now Quark has gone above and beyond by turning it into a souffle. And I love how they completely indicate that scene as they go in. So you know there has to be a twist, which right. they, they did well. Rom has a great line as he's describing what what will happen to him. 8 o'clock, cake and Ractagino. 8.30, execute the Ferengi. <laughs> just... <laughs> Great, great, great lines. And in that scene, I am not buying that a couple of Jem'Hadar would just stand there and be held at gunpoint by Quark. Look, it's a fun scene. It's good to see Quark do his thing because now we are pulling for a principled Quark in this part of DS9. But they would have shot first. Well, that's in the director's cut. The Jem'Hadar shot first. Okay, yes, good. Good to know. Yeah, yeah. But then they hit the wall, and then it bounced off a couple other walls, and mm. I don't know. didn't really work out. Uh, you know, I, I, buy that, I buy that they wouldn't fire first more than I buy Kira summarily forgiving Odo right before she goes from the Jeffries tube. She's like, all's forgiven, right? You Ooh. saved me from a couple of dudes, and, and we're good now, right? Yeah. Because I trust you now. With Yeah. I trust you now, but literally, like, hours before, I gave you, like, the rage of the gods, and I wanted to kill you for your betrayal, but we're good now. So yeah. I I have many things to say about that. Season 6 Kira is different from Season 1 Kira, but that seems like a big ask. So Oh, one of several in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. By the way, a new rule, which I had not implemented until now. So we've often said on Mission Log that uh, the trip in a turbo lift is exactly the amount of time needed for the dialogue said in that turbo lift. That, that's how you do turbo lift math. Now, same thing with the trip through the wormhole. The, the time it takes to get through the wormhole is exactly how long it takes you to play out that action scene in the wormhole. So, Cardassian timing is impeccable. Oh, yeah. Totally. Totally. Right. Yeah. But I do love how uh, during that whole sequence before, like, he's, uh, Dakot's, like, waiting for the wormhole to open and for the Dominion to pour out. I love how he's playing with Cisco's baseball because he's like, yep, this is my victory. This is, and I have the proof in my hand that I have beaten Cisco, which is why I love how it was used at the end where he's like, nope. You won. Here's your yeah. baseball back. Yep. Yeah. Watching Mark Alimo in this in this episode in particular, but over the course of the several episodes in this arc, I didn't really realize or appreciate how good he really is. Mm. Because usually yeah. he's, you know, playing off of one character or another, or he is the antagonist. 
but it's the scenes where he's alone, like when he was walking through the promenade and trying to shake himself out of his stupor and just falling completely apart at the end. Yeah. A privilege to watch. Stunning. Stunning. This is some of the best work that we've seen out of him. And he's he's already great. Like we've already mm-hmm. pointed out so many great Jakot moments in in our history of watching him on DS Nine. But wow, uh, yeah. this was truly stunning. Oh, hey, another great Wayun line. Time to start packing. <laughs> it's just without missing a beat. He's so good. Oh, oh, we learned that the Cortez is still okay. No word on the Sarek though. So uh, we'll have to keep our ears open for that one. But yeah, like you, I love seeing Ducat lose his mind. It's just dramatic and heartbreaking. And what's so interesting to me is that he could go any direction now. You Mm -hmm. could really do anything with this character who has played nothing but strength and a bit of, well, maybe a lot of sociopathic tendency. Now you've broken him down. So it'll be very interesting to see the next thing we get out of Dukat. I like the scene at the end where Cisco shows him mercy because there's been this, you know, obviously this rivalry and tension between the two of them. But at the end of the day, Cisco wins. Dukat has lost everything. And Cisco needs to move on, and they all need to just put this behind them. And I think that trying to get Dukat medical attention was a noble thing. And yeah. I liked seeing that nobility at the end of this episode. Agreed. Yeah. Hey, just one thing to point out. So the Defiant arrives at DS9 right after a harrowing mission. Nearly everybody was wiped out at at any given point during that mission. The Dominion are gone by just minutes. O'Brien and Bashir, what are they what are they talking about? What are they ready to do? They're ready to go to the Hollow Suite and play the Battle of Britain. Absolutely no word on Keiko and the kids. You just couldn't help yourself, could you? No, I could not. That's it. We never even found out if Morin's mother liked her present. We will get back to Sacrifice of Angels in just a moment. But first, a quick word from our sponsors, like ExpressVPN. You know, Norman, there are many things in life that that maybe don't feel quite fair. Like, uh, let let me throw this one at you. Uh, Mm -hmm. The the fact that, say, like a a streaming platform like Netflix, you know, they, they could hide shows and movies from you based on location. And then the the nerve to increase prices on you. I mean, uh, uh, unthinkable. So, but but that happens. You know, these streaming platforms it will raise prices as they often do. Now, you could, you could, if you were feeling a little salty, go and uh, cancel your subscription and protest, or, or you could do something else. We're going to let you in a little secret. You could make a smart decision, and you could be getting your full money's worth by using ExpressVPN, just like we do. So here's something that was new to me, what you just mentioned, and I had to take a look at it myself. And I didn't know that that what's on Netflix in, say, our country is completely different than, say, what someone is watching in the UK or in Japan or in other countries. That's that's what's on their Netflix. So so using ExpressVPN, I can control which country I want my Netflix to think I'm in. And that's, again, that was 
unbeknownst to me until I did a little bit more research. And ExpressVPN has over 90 countries to choose from. So every time you run out of stuff to watch, you just switch over to another country to unlock new shows in technically that country. And here's the best part. It's not just for Netflix. You can use ExpressVPN to unlock shows on other streaming services too. Uh, And that is exactly what I do. I mentioned it before, but like the BBC iPlayer is free and it's only available in the UK. So uh, in doing all of this, ExpressVPN, as we mentioned before, super fast, works on your phone, your laptop, even your smart TV. So you can watch your shows on the big screen, zero buffering. So be smart and stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com slash mission log. Don't forget to use our link so you can get three extra months free. That's expressvpn.com slash mission log. Expressvpn.com slash mission log to learn more. One other quick word, Norman, and that is from our friends over at Helix Sleep. So I've told you before about the ordering process, doing the Helix Sleep quiz. Then I told you about the the free show you get, you know, the scientific wonder of watching a huge mattress spring forth from its vacuum packaging. Oh, yeah, there's so much more. And yes, you're right, John. Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete, and it matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. I mean, everyone's unique, and Helix knows that, so they have several different mattresses to choose from. They have soft and medium and firm mattresses. Mattresses great for cooling you down if you sleep hot, and even a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size folks. So here's what I did, and I, I mentioned it before. I took the Helix Quiz, and I was matched to the Twilight mattress because I wanted something that felt a little firmer, and I sleep on my side. And apparently I sleep on my back and on my stomach and I move basically I'm moving around all night. I'm like doing gymnastics. So, yes, I I wanted the the twilight was the perfect match for me. And it is definitely a great mattress. It it was easy to set up. I opened the box. And as I mentioned, that that miraculous thing unfolds and sort of uh, uh, settles itself into a queen size mattress. And it was soft, but it's still really supportive. It gives a great, comfortable sleep right away. It's just a fantastic way to relax. So if you are looking for a mattress, do what I did. You take the quiz, you order the mattress that you're matched to. That mattress comes right to you, shipped for free. And as I mentioned, you get to watch this thing unfold. So cool. You don't ever have to go to a mattress store again. Let me tell you, that is a miracle too. Helix is awesome, but you don't need to take my word for it. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazines. So just go to helixsleep.com slash mission log and take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They also have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. And right now, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash mission log. All right, John. So let's start off with the elephant in the room here. Uh Uh-oh. Which is the choice as the writers to create this complex issue with the deus ex machina plot device to eliminate the Dominion fleet in the wormhole. 
And okay, so we have said this before, and I'm sure that there are very, very intelligent people in our audience that know exactly what deus ex machina is. But if you don't, and just to give you a little bit more reference to the rest of our discussion, deus ex machina is a plot device whereby a seemingly unsolvable problem, in this case, the Dominion fleet, in a story is suddenly and abruptly resolved by an unexpected and unlikely occurrence, in this case, the prophet's wishing away the Dominion fleet. Its mm-hmm. function can be to resolve an otherwise irresolvable plot situation to surprise the audience, to bring the tale to a happy ending or act as a comedic device. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what or all three of them are applicable, but yes. this I think is probably the largest discussion point we could probably talk about for days. I, I don't see how it's not. And something that I mentioned off air, and now I need to bring it up so everybody can hear it, is that um, in doing research on this episode, I, I was struck exactly the same way that you were. I'm watching along. I'm like, oh, how are they going to get out of this? How will they take back the station? All these people working incredibly hard for the right resolution. And then I said to myself, uh, wow, that's deus ex machina writ large (laughs) literally asking the gods to do this thing and i try not to read other people's criticisms or comments on an episode until after i've written all of my notes and gotten my thoughts straightened out and one of the last things that i looked at before we recorded was an interview snippet from iris Stephen bear who said it's not deus ex machina and I absolutely want to give the benefit of the doubt to the people who created the show, the incredibly talented people who wrote these great stories. And I kept trying to figure out where Ira was going with this and how to justify that this is not deus ex machina or why I shouldn't feel maybe a little bit of a slap in the face from it. And all I could figure is like, okay, look, we're in a very long story with a lot of background, not not just the background of the previous five episodes, but everything that's built up about the Dominion War, everything that's been built up about our understanding of the wormhole aliens, everything that's been built up about Cisco's special position in all of this. I understand there are little details in that dialogue between Cisco and the prophets, where the prophets, in fact, it's the prophet version of Jake that says that, that they, they have to exact some sort of payment for this, like that there has to be a price to pay for doing this. I'm not convinced that any of that negates that this is deus ex machina. <laughs> I'm absolutely trying to go with the idea that, oh, it, but if the writer says it's not, then then what else could I read in this? Whatever the resolution is, I'm really so much more interested in how we got there and what it says about the people involved. Because it, to me, this just raises so many questions. Like, well, first of all, where's Q during all of this or the Metrons or anybody else who can just step in and by Star Trek logic completely change the natural course of events whenever they feel like it? Or the Organians for that matter. Or the Organians, because re- really that, that's what it is. It's just the prophets had to be convinced to feel like this action is what we should do right now. 
any other godlike species that we've met up until this point could potentially would do the same thing with the right argument presented to them. And that all of that is just one more reason why I question Starfleet's or at least Cisco's relationship with the wormhole aliens. They should have heard about loads of species like this already. I, I mean, this should just be like a common thing now. And and we know that Q intervenes whenever he feels like it. He's been on DS9. He got punched out by Cisco. Doesn't mean that he couldn't show up again and snap his fingers and make something else happen. Maybe even take the wormhole away. Who knows? Uh, but it's a weird position to put yourself in where contrast this with a story in, say, Next Gen. Q, by snapping his fingers introduces the crew of the Enterprise D to the most fearsome foe that they will meet. But then what does he do is like, no, 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 you have to figure your own way out of this. I, I just set the ball rolling here. Here we have the opposite. <laughs> here we have the opposite where we have this very complex structure of aliens working in cahoots to take over the Alpha Quadrant. And now we're doing, well, the gods who in, in Greek theater would have literally come down on a machine, you know, a rope-driven machine to then fix the ending of the play. And that's what we have here. And it just doesn't sit right with me. I guess my my big concern here is if if Cisco did not enter the wormhole for whatever reason— would the wormhole aliens interceded on behalf of the station anyway? Because that's what we're looking at here. We're looking at what was Cisco's motivation to go into the wormhole as the quote-unquote tactical officer that Admiral Ross put all of his military strategy trust into to promote him to be this tactical officer. And he flies into the wormhole and Dax, Dax asks him if he has a plan B, and his plan B is to fight the Dominion with <laughs> one ship? Yeah. I, I understand that they want to ramp up the tension, they want to ramp up the drama, but don't you think that it would have made more sense that Cisco is going into the wormhole for the most Hail Mary of Hail Marys to challenge the wormhole aliens themselves to step in? I mean, he goes in there to fight the Dominion. Yeah, well, let's not forget, though, that there probably was one other tactic he could have used. He did tell the prophets, the, the wormhole aliens, that he would sacrifice himself and his ship to protect everybody on the other side. They could have pulled a warp core breach. They could have blown up and sealed the wormhole, thus preventing the rest of those ships to come in. But right. that still leaves an awful lot of other ships on the other side. It still leaves areas unprotected. So that that is one possibility. But even a, remember the wormhole aliens, they live outside of time. They see all, they know all, or a lot anyway, according to what we understand of them. They would have known, theoretically, that a, a you know a, a warp core breach or some other type of uh, explosion in the wormhole would have destroyed the wormhole and potentially destroyed them. So they probably would have stopped that anyway. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. They have the orb of wisdom. They have the orb of this. They have the orb of time, which mm -hmm. we saw. This yeah. is canon, which we saw wreak havoc upon the universe if, uh, you know, if uh, Arn Darwin was able to assassinate Kirk. It would have changed the course of time. Right. And they used the orb of time to change the course of time back. 
So the the prophets or the wormhole aliens, they know what was going to happen. So would they have interceded on the behalf of this free people's army or not? If 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 Cisco never challenged, like Cisco went in there to fight and die trying. Yeah. Yeah. But he didn't go in there to say like, you know what? We got one shot at this. I'm going to plead my case. See if they're on our side, because there's no way that we can fight this without the help of gods. And there's only one person that can talk to him, and that's me. That's the only shot we got. Might as well take it, because that is as good of a chance to work as any, especially if we're going up against thousands of ships that we will get cut to pieces by in the blink of an eye. Yeah. All right, uh, right, Norman, you're going to get me really worked up about the prophets here, and I apologize. <laughs> but, Don't apologize to me. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, this is sort of – and look, again, I always feel like I have to preface this by saying I understand that there's still more DS9 to come. And not everything has been resolved. Not that everything has to be resolved with a nice bow around it. But one of the hallmarks of this show is this exploration of spirituality and faith and worship, etc., and putting Cisco in this weird, difficult position. But, but... I, from the beginning, have questioned everything about the prophets, and I'm starting to really not like them, especially in a situation like this. I'm starting to think of them the way I would the founders. They're so advanced that they somehow can't figure out for themselves the consequences of their own actions or inactions. This should not have been a discussion at all. If the founders know and care about Bejor anyway, they, they are truly living in their own world. And that makes them bad citizens for this corner of the quadrant. They, they seem to accept and perpetuate and, and even like the praise that they get from the Bajorans. Like they, they live for this. This is important to them. But they have this massive blind spot about their own responsibility. So I would say, are they even worth the praise. At, at this point, they are all-powerful, but completely disinterested entities who have to be begged, or do I say prayed to, to take any interest in the universe around them. I, I find that to be awful and bordering on criminal. Not that we could necessarily apply our same, uh, you know, jurisdiction to them, but I I'm going to put it out there anyway. So the question becomes, do they benefit and in what way do they benefit by having the Bajorans worship them? Is it just feeding their oversized egos? Because, again, like the founders, there seems to be zero empathy or understanding for them. Like literally somebody has to show up and say, no, 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 you don't understand that that letting this powerful force take over an entire quadrant of the galaxy is a bad thing. Let me reiterate, it's a bad thing. How are you essentially, quote unquote, gods and don't understand that? They say we have every right to intervene, but that is a corporeal matter. I, I am hating profit logic at this point. And it's the same thing mirrored when the the female changeling said, "These uh, the, the concerns of mortals aren't your concern. You know, they are beneath us. They it, are below us." Exactly. Yes. I don't understand like why the Dominion just doesn't take on the prophets directly. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, they have the firepower to do it, or maybe they don't. 
You know, the whole thing with divine intervention as a tool to be able to conclude what I think was a, a very well-constructed and orchestrated story up to a point, it's just, it seems to be kind of uh, elusive for elusive's sake. Like, it doesn't, yeah. I'm not going to, I don't want to uh, disparage uh, Ira's decision to do this or Hans, but it just seems that they got to this point. I'm totally sucking getting this, by the way, so no less, please. <laughs> but it just it seems like, uh, from what he said, that it's not deus ex machina, that it's a, a, a conscious choice. If you, if you are saying that, then do you feel that it was a clear choice? Do we feel that there is clarity to where Cisco is at the end of this episode, where the prophets are at the end of this episode, where the decision to intervene on behalf of Bajor and you're right. If the Bajorans have earned at least some of the of the wormhole aliens' attention, is that clear right. with this decision? Well, and that's sort of the lucky but unfortunate thing about the prophets as they've been written. It's one of these sort of get out of jail free things where you just get to say like, well, if we they're so mysterious, we know so little about them, but they have a lot of power. So we can just sort of make them do whatever is convenient to the story. And this was a big, big convenience for the story. And you're talking about were these things earned? Well, you know, we go back to a conversation we were having last week about Cisco and, and his motivations being earned. Are they? The prophet saying this, the Cisco is of Bajor, but he will find no rest there. I, we just literally introduced that in the last episode that he wants to retire on Bajor. Now, we don't know what his penance is. That that was the word used there. And I, of course, there are more episodes to go to find that out. But where we are right now in this story, it is damn perplexing. Yeah. You know what? I don't really want to beat up <laughs> the deus ex machina too much more because I think that you and I, we came to this decision because there was a strong story that was being developed. And they were taking us to a, a very powerful narrative journey that we wanted to see resolved in not the traditional Star Trek best of both worlds part two from the next generation way where all of a sudden – it just wraps up neatly, tidily, in a bow. Thank you for watching. Move on to the next episode. Uh, well, see, that that's just it. And that is the point of frustration here because I kept asking myself, again, not as a writer on TV. I'm not wearing my writer hat right now. I will plead ignorance. Is there, was there a resolution to this story that did not rely on interference from the prophets. I know that that's an interesting storyline. I know that their relationship to Bejor is interesting. I know that Cisco's questioning of his relationship to them is interesting. But we've just been through so much. We've seen so much action and seen a lot of detail about characters who are really put in this tremendously difficult situation. All those people in Starfleet and the Klingon Defense Force, for that matter, we're working really hard. And we saw some developing and very clever strategies like cutting off the catcher cell white, like destroying the sensors in the Argolis cluster, and yes, putting up a minefield at the wormhole. Like this was all really fascinating strategic stuff that spoke to Starfleet's approach being outmanned and outgunned. How were they going to deal with this force that was eminently more powerful than them that seem to have every advantage in the fight. It feels like a 
well, it just feels like a cheaper way out to say, oh, well, well, we asked, insert whoever you want. Again, the Metrons, the Organians, Q, in this case, the Prophets, we, we just, well, well, we asked. And they, and they said, okay. So they did it. <laughs> well, even more powerful than, say, Q or the Metrons. I'm sorry. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Metrons. Yeah. Or the Organians. I mean, even more powerful than that is something that I don't think that, uh, you know, the 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 Dominion ever saw coming. Oh, what was that? Plot armor. Oh, that is the most powerful substance in the universe. Yeah, truly, truly. Hey, uh, well, I think I think we'll come back to this in a moment too when we do our final wrap up. But look, there were some other interesting places here to chat about. A true victory is to make your enemies see that they were wrong to oppose you in the first place, to force them to acknowledge your greatness. Then you kill them only if necessary. <laughs> I love that exchange so much. It's coming from Ducat's new book, How to Conquer Friends and Terrorize People. I can't wait to read that one. And I'm looking forward to the audiobook myself. Oh, yeah. Oh, that, that'll be great, yeah. too. Yeah. And Gul Ducat's deluded mind, even before he, well, has the, the really serious breakdown at the end, but his idea of how he's not thanked for what he did, is there a single statue of me on Bejor or Bejor, however you want to say it? Just a fantastic insight into, as we've said before, very often, you know, to to the villain, he is the hero of his own story. And that is absolutely driving everything that Galdicott does, just completely clueless about what his actions actually cause. Yeah, I mean, he is walking the razor's edge between egotist uh, way about him and insanity. I mean, he really is. And obviously, seeing they all get murdered in front of him mm -hmm. pushes him way over to the other side of the fence. And it takes an actor of uh, Mark Alimo's quality to be able to watch that crumble, that wall crumble between those two parts of his ego that are are just completely in, you know, in pieces at the end. And it's probably one of the most compelling stories that I've seen so far uh, overall in Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it's just fascinating to watch. And I have, I have a, a, a strange confession to make. I love the secondary characters' stories more than the main characters' stories in Deep Space Nine. I I think I'm right there on the same page with you. Um, I think over six seasons, well, five plus, I think we've we've had a decline in what we've gotten out of Dax. But up until now, I think Dax, I think one of the best developed characters in the show. But here we are with Dakot just outshining everybody. And then when you pair him up with a character like Wayun, I could watch that all day. I, it's a detriment to the show that at least where we are now, and again, you know, people don't freak out, but <laughs> it's, right. a, it's a little bit of a detriment to the story here that Cisco is capable, but really what we got out of him the last few episodes was, let's have a daring plan. The plan didn't work. I'll go ask the gods. And then everything's okay. I'm sorry, I just went back to our previous point. <laughs> well, I mean, it, uh, the only thing that, I mean, um, the only character that I, I was truly, truly, truly disappointed in uh, this time around, and I never am, mm -hmm. and I probably will get over it 
fairly soon, is Garrick, because Garrick is on the bridge of the Defiant, and Garrick is the survivalist par excellence, right? He, he, he saves his own skin first and foremost. But he's on the bridge, and not once, not once did anybody on the bridge challenge Cisco's decisions to face off against the Dominion. Not once. Hmm. And Garrick would have been the one who says, is really this our best plan, sir? You know, even Dax would have been like, yeah, where's this is your plan B. This is kind of not the plan B I was hoping for. I mean, even even Commodore Decker, under threat of having his command removed against going up against the Doomsday Machine, yeah. you know, was more realistic than what happened here. I mean, Dr. McCoy was about to remove his command citing on medical authority because he was putting his entire ship at risk for just cuz reasons. Right. Right. And that isn't that what's going on here? I know. I know. Now, I mean, look, here's the interesting thing about uh, Garrick's change over time is that we started with a character who was just full of mystery. Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Is he even telling the truth about having been a spy? What, you know, what do we believe? What do we not believe? And kind of like Quark, he has assimilated nicely into what is good about the Federation, what is good about Starfleet, and realizes, like, these are his allies. And certainly you saw this huge amount of uh, emotional honesty out of him at the end of this episode. So big, big change for Garrick. But I do agree with you that if anybody was going to challenge Cisco, that would have been the one. I'm pretty sure the Metrons appeared more than once. I hear that human musicians rely on very small Metrons. They're called metronomes. So here we are at the end of our discussion, and I don't think that we've come any closer to answering the pinnacle question of this entire show is how many angels does the Cisco have, or actually how many profits does the Cisco have to dance at the head of a pin? Now, I don't think we can answer that, but I do think that we can answer a couple of very poignant points of this episode, especially how did you feel about the show, John, and how did this hold up for you? (sighs) All right. So uh, there's one thing that I mentioned last week, and I'll mention it again. I really like what they did by giving Zial a lot of depth and building our interest and sympathy for her. Um, by killing her off, we, we don't then just fall into a trap of seeing her constantly battled between Dukat and Kira. Um, and at the same time, we look, we, we saw Dukat's fall into madness, but we also saw a redeemable side to him. He used her. He lied her. But he was going to protect her. And it raises a lot of questions. Like, would Dukat have kept her secret? This was all a dramatic storyline that had payoff and as we've talked about in this episode and the last episode was earned these were earned moments with these characters so i like the way that uh, she was developed and you know i remember reading in the trivia uh, that i did not include for this episode but this was a point of discussion saying well we're going to kill off somebody who could or should that be that would have impact and meaning and actually have some resonance with the characters. And it it made sense to the writers to develop this story along with Zial 
and then her death actually have some meaning. So I thought all of that played out very nicely. And, you know, one thing that we didn't really talk too much about here, other than just questioning Kira's reaction, which is Odo's change in motivation. Should we have seen that coming? <laughs> you know, when, when is Kira's life being threatened? It, 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 should we have just gotten that right about that? Well, of course, of course, he's going to change for that. As soon as Kira's life is threatened, all that great link stuff goes out the window. And, and he does have a good line, you know, the link was paradise, but it appears I'm not ready for paradise. Interesting ideas here. You know, it was an emotional appeal to Odo that drew him into the great link. It then had to be a more powerful emotional appeal that took him out. You weren't going to be able to, as we've said before, logic somebody out of a position they came to for illogical reasons. So that's what happened here with uh, with Odo. And you know what? Uh, we got some interesting feedback on Twitter. Somebody who said this is very much like a cult-like experience for Odo, being drawn into a cult with the promise of, well, we can fix all your problems. You don't have to worry about any of this other real world stuff going on we're here to solve it all for you so the appeal is understandable and yes i I think the resolution makes sense but do i totally buy kira's reaction well let's let's wait and see now here's why i'm really torn on the whole resolution with dominion and using the wormhole aliens i hate it as deus ex machina I want to see our crew do something awesome and heroic or awesome and diplomatic, whichever way you want to slice it. I like these characters. I'm invested in the abilities that these characters have, and I want to see their hard work pay off. At the same time, and maybe here's where I'll soften up my own position on this. I I actually, I thought of Kirk in a situation like this. He's talked to computers. He's talked computers to death in the past. He has talked down gods in the past <laughs> because, as we know, gods are just aliens whose power we don't fully understand and then mistakenly worshipped at some point. And what do they need with a starship? Right. So mm-hmm. would he give a similar speech and make a similar appeal to a power he doesn't fully grasp? but he can try to appeal to their sense of justice or protection or maybe using the term incorrectly, humanity here. So maybe that's the one place that I'll cut this resolution a bit of slack because we've had similar, not the same, but we've had some similar resolutions in the past where all it takes is just the right words from a Starfleet officer to make somebody else fix the problem. Now, the big difference here, though, is that it's not the wormhole aliens who caused this problem in the first place. They literally are just the closest by most powerful beings that we can appeal to. So that's where it goes a little off the rails for me. That's where, again, I I wanted to see our crew really exercise their strengths But then I had to look at it in the bigger picture of Star Trek and go, okay, if I'm going to cut it any slack at all, that's where it'll be. Ah, but I don't want to be sold on my own argument. (laughs) How do you feel about it? Well, you know, I 
I, we're probably going to get some pushback on this episode because I know that there are a lot of fantastically loyal and and rightfully so fans of Deep Space Nine. But I got to be honest, um, you've been honest. I have to be honest as well. And if you want to watch this, like one of the best and most impressive collections of Star Trek battle. Uh, Starship battle scenes in the history of the franchise? Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. This episode is amazing at that. And that's where my recommendation ends Hmm. from a storytelling standpoint because you have this multi-arc narrative and with with so many asks that you get uh, in in a narrative like this and especially in the second part of a very powerful two-part story, you can only ask the audience to suspend certain aspects of their disbelief so many times before it becomes meaningless. And the first time in this episode was when the Klingons just appeared out of nowhere. That's like the Millennium Falcon coming out and saving Luke at the end of Star Wars. Amazing scene. Mm -hmm. Great ask. You're like, yep, Worf came in on time, the nick of time to save it, and that's usually where an episode would end perfect. But then you have... Another ask with Odo and Kira. They're fighting side by side again, as if nothing happened. I mean, yes, so far. But before that, she was ready to kill him for betraying everybody. And he was disinterested because he's grappling with being a god. But it all resolves in one exchange of uh, firepower against the Jem'Hadar, and she gets saved, and everything's good. That's another ask. Yeah. So there's two big ones already. And then you get to the final ask, the not quote-unquote deus ex machina. And to me, that that weighs heavily against everything that's been invested so far from an audience standpoint, from my standpoint at least. Think about what everyone has done to get to this point. And I understand what you're saying, John, to soften your side of the argument. I understand what you're saying that, yes, Kirk, even Picard, mm-hmm. they both have had their moments where they made their plea against these you know, omnipotent powers for their help. But this time, though, Cisco didn't go to the omnipotent powers for their help. He went to fight the war. They just appeared to him, and then he asked for their help. Yeah, good point. So that's where... It really falls apart for me because he knows he's the emissary. He studied ancient Bajoran text, wondering if the emissary was supposed to do something. Admiral Ross brought that up in the previous episode. He was trying to find some type of divine inspiration. Why didn't that divine inspiration come to him at that point? The truth reveals itself, right? He's the emissary. I'm at the point where I need the prophets most, where Bajor is most threatened. But he didn't. Yeah. He went there just to fight and die right? to make some type of grand military stand. And that makes absolutely zero sense. And that just completely dissolves all the emotional buy-in that you have from the previous episodes. So I can't give that a pass because Ira and Hans are, they're smart. Yeah. And they're, they're crafty and they're much more intelligent writers than what came at the end of this episode. And... Here's the big question. If the prophets didn't care this entire time, why do they care now? That is a great point. And by the way, so having a conversation like this is why I'm sad that we're not in a uh, position to have conventions right now, because this is the kind of discussion that would be going on for hours and hours and hours and hours in person with people challenging you, challenging me. And I love it. Now, 
we have just been through a long arc that is very heavily plot driven. We've gotten great character moments out of it as well. But we do ask ourselves at the end of the day, what is the message? What is at heart of this episode? I honestly didn't find a whole lot other than just the interesting, challenging, character driven, plot driven moments. So I'm going to kick it to you first with what you think this episode is all about. I mean, it was tough for me, too. Yeah. And I, John and I, we take a, a great deal of time and effort to to thoughtfully craft these final moments about these morals and meanings and messages. And I think I have rewritten my notes three or four times because I wasn't exactly sure what to say or how to say mm. it. Is it pride goeth before a fall? That's fairly easy. It's pretty obvious, right? Or is it just better to be lucky than good? Mm-hmm. Because essentially every single victory that Cisco had over the course of these last two episodes is purely luck. Yep. Purely luck. Fortune favors the bold. I get that. In concert with him being this Starfleet tactical master, hey, why do you need that kind of prowess when you got gods on your side? <laughs> right? Because <laughs> right? that's all it really amount, uh, yeah. amounted to. So. I, I get that, and I know I'm being flippant about it, and I'm sorry, but that's just the way that it kind of sits with me. I don't know what the message is, really. It's There's a lot going on, and does it really have to have a message? I mean, okay, so maybe for Dukat, yes, he he sacrificed everything and lost everything. And Cisco technically sacrificed nothing but gained everything. Yeah, uh, even like upper hand, uh, the noble, if you will, but still upper hand on Ducat at the end. So, but here's what I did come away with: I came away with a greater um, enjoyment and respect and understanding for I think is probably one of the hardest working second casts in the history of the franchise. I mean, Ducat, Garak, Damar, Wayun, Quark. Well, Quark's not secondary, but I love him anyway. Yeah. Rom, Zial, Martok. Yeah, they're. For me, I can't get enough of that cast. Yeah. I can't. They they are outstripping the main cast for me far and wide. Um, I know I'm probably in a, on a very small island about it. But, okay, so let me ask you just one last question, and maybe this is something that the, the audience can answer. I'm not exactly sure what the Federation in this part of space represents as a whole, aside from being a military gatekeeper for the wormhole. I don't know what the Federation is here. And I need to because isn't the Federation supposed to represent our ideals in this franchise? That is so well put. And and that I think is one of the central problems with the story thus far is that Cisco was put on DS9 for a purpose, which is negotiate, navigate this difficult path of getting Bejor back on its feet and ultimately to be a part of the Federation. To what end? Because right now it's just been about the military mission. And we we know, at least we think we know, that the Federation is about so much more than that. But we focus so much on this that I think to your very good point, we're losing sight of that big picture. Now, along the way, I will completely back up what you're saying here. Along the way, DS9, as I said before, has some of the best dialogue ever put in Star Trek. It has got some of the best character actors and secondary characters ever put in Star Trek. 
the character development and growth and the, the groundedness that they have, absolutely astonishing. Such good stuff. And you, you really feel yourself becoming a part of that world when you watch it. But then you run into a plot <laughs> that asks our suspension of disbelief to go to places that just don't jibe with our expectations of an episode. So at a certain point, this was a fun ride up until the point. There were great action sequences. There were great character moments. But at the end of the day, what's the lesson at the end of the episode or, or even for the whole arc that we just spent six episodes discussing? Pray really hard and you'll get what you want. I, that seems to be the lesson for Cisco. Although Cisco has a penance coming up, which we can only imagine what that will be. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you would like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, you are cordially invited. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Can just anybody ask the prophets to do them a solid after this episode? Because I have a list. transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.